Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome back to Signals to Danger. This is episode 8 of season 1. I'll start, as ever, by thanking you all for showing up downloading and streaming. Welcome back to our regulars. thought the last episode actually saw a big leap in terms of downloads in the first seven days, so either you were all really keen, or there might actually be some new listeners out there as well. If that's the case, hello to all of you. Announcements first to start as ever. First and foremost being me asking you again to like, share, subscribe. It's the best way to grow the podcast and it's working so far. I want to give a special thanks to our three new patrons who signed up during the last week as well. Martin, Michael and Alex, your support is very appreciated and I'm happy to have you on board. Now, if you too would like to come along and support the podcast, get yourself over to patreon.com forward slash signals to danger. Our general support tier is only £3 a month and for that you get a shout out and the occasional post on Patreon as well, you know, in excess of the stuff that I do on the other social media. I am still looking at options for higher tiers, so if there's anything that you can think of, let me know. Perhaps maybe I film myself making the podcast, or maybe I do some show notes, some exclusive content. The sorts of things you'd be interested in are the best things for me to put together, so if you can think of any, let me know. The next announcement is me putting a bit of an appeal out there and asking for help. Going forwards, I would love to cover the tragic vandalism-instigated derailment at Greenock. In 1994, there were two deaths caused there because two teenagers decided to stick concrete blocks on the track. I think it could be a good episode and have some really good learning points. However, I've come up against a bit of a blocker. One of the main sources that I use for every episode is the official report. I then supplement that with other sources, news, other documents. I can't, for the life of me, track down an investigation report into Greenock. So... If you know where to get hold of one, or if you have them yourself, please get in touch and let me know. Your help might be the difference between this episode actually happening and it remaining on the drawing board. The last few weeks have been very busy for the REIB. In fact, since I started writing this episode, I've needed to amend this section twice. And since I wrote this part of the script, I've had to amend it a third time, because further updates have come in over the course of the fortnight. I've always been keen to keep you up to date, and I've also been keen to point out that despite the fact we so infrequently hear of tragedy on the railway, accidents and investigations are still taking place. This is punctuated in the fact that the RIIB has released, only in the last two weeks, five separate investigation reports. 
these are quite a variety of things. They cover a significant signal passed at danger, a SPAD near Loughborough, the derailment of a freight train near Wanstead Park, a collision between two empty stock LNER services outside Neville Hill Depot in Leeds, and the collision between a derailed locomotive and a passenger train at Bronzegrove. The fifth and most serious of these reports was to cover the tragic fatality of two track workers at Margham near Port Talbot and Rails. Any death on the railway is a huge loss, but this report highlights some key opportunities that were missed which could have prevented it happening. All of these reports are available for free on the REIB website, so I really would recommend go read them. I'd probably go into more detail on each of them individually if there wasn't so many of them. I couldn't do them, even the justice, just to breeze through them now. So go ahead, give them a look. Anyway, that was a bit of a long intro, so thank you for your patience. Let's move into today's episode. Rural Kent, on a peaceful Saturday morning in autumn. The rolling fog started to thin as the sun began to burn through. The quiet faded away as emergency services began to arrive at the isolated section of track. Two trains could be found there, showing the scars of a dreadful collision. The year is 1994 and the place, Cowden. People are known to have died. Carriages are crushed one on top of another. One lies metres away and appears partially. Burned. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. I don't normally say this at the start, but I am a little bit blocked of nose at the moment, so if it's a more breathy podcast than usual, I ask for your forgiveness now. If you've listened before, you'll know what happens next. The year is 1994. This year saw a few significant events, and some of them were less positive than others. We'll start with one of those ones. February saw police start digging up the garden at 25 Cromwell Street, Gloucester. Four days later, Fred and Rose West were arrested for multiple murders and charged later in the year. March sees the absolutely fantastic film Schindler's List pick up seven Oscars, including Best Picture, and in April, Nelson Mandela is named as South Africa's first democratically elected president, finally signifying the end of apartheid. September yet again shows us how disaster can be found elsewhere, as the car ferry Estonia sinks in the Baltic Sea, taking the lives of 852 people. In rail news, this year saw the completion and opening of the Channel Tunnel, Still the third longest rail tunnel in the world. It has the longest underwater section and it meant that people could get on a train in the UK and get off in France. 
our railway network was finally connected with that of the continents. By this point, we're really pushing up against the end of British Rail, and April saw passenger services split into two shadow franchises, or passenger train operating units, which is more of a mouthful. Now that we have an idea of what's going on in the world at this time, let's move to October of this year. Normally, we'd start the story by talking about the train that was involved. This time round, it's not quite as simple as that, so let's start talking about the name on the episode title instead. Cowden. Cowden is a lovely little village with a current population of 800 people. You can find it in the district of Sevenoaks, Kent, around 30 miles south of London. The village is home to a lottery winner, a grade 2 listed pub, and up until his death in 1988, Roger Hargreaves, creator of the Mr. Men. Like quite a lot of countryside villages and towns, the station itself isn't actually in the village. Instead, you need to travel around a mile out until you pass under the line at an underbridge and find the station just to the left. And when you get there, you will find the epitome of an English countryside station. A brick building sits on the single platform, and the single line curves away in each direction bordered by trees and the Kent countryside. You might have picked up on this already, but this week we've taken a bit of a step away from the high-speed main lines that we've covered in other episodes. Cowden can be found on the Oxted line, a relatively quiet and low-traffic line which runs from South Croydon in the capital down to Oxted in Surrey. Just south of that, at Hurst Green, it branches into two separate lines, one leading down to East Grinford, and the other to Uckfield, both are market towns in the county of Surrey. While the line as far as Hurst Green has double tracking throughout, once you move into the branches, a great deal of it is now single tracked. Changing lines to single track was something that British Rail did a lot of on less used branches. If the services are infrequent enough that you don't need the extra capacity, half as much track means half as much to maintain. This happened in many places. For years I worked around the Huddersfield area, and the Peniston line, which helped to link Huddersfield to Barnsley and Sheffield, is a prime example. A great deal of this came out of the beaching-inspired rationalisation of lines, which survived the axe. Cowden used to have two platforms, one that currently exists and another opposite. The platform that's left is the old down platform leading away from London and towards Uckfield. An up platform used to exist, linked by a footbridge, but when the other line was removed in 1990, that platform was just taken out of use. These new single line railways had to be operated safely, and the most obvious and clear rule was that you couldn't have two trains travelling towards each other on single lines. On very short branches... This means that one train at a time would work down and then back up the branch. Only one train would be on the branch at that time. While very, very safe, it's not practical on longer lines. So when BR rationalised them, they left some sections of double track. These could be stations where both platforms were left in use, or passing loops on the sections in between. This meant that multiple trains could run along the branch, time to pass each other at those sections. 
which is the exact situation we find at Cowden and on the Oxted line. The station at Cowden is found in the middle of a single track section between Ashurst to the south and Haver to the north. Trains entering the section where the station can be found are only allowed in when the line is clear. So with that background in our pockets, let's start to talk about trains. Two Echo 2-4 Echo 2-4 was a down passenger train headed south along the line from Oxted to Uckfield on the morning of Saturday the 15th of October 1994. With driver Reese at the controls and guard duties being carried out by a Mr Boyd, this service had left Oxted at 0804, an early service which would get people into the market town in time for work shopping and days with the family. The journey was normal, with no major issues despite the fact that the weather was pretty grim. The 15th was an extremely foggy morning. In some places the visibility was only 50 metres. As the train departed Haver, it continued down the line. As it travelled south it gradually climbed, flanked by the trees, curving left and right through the mist. Shortly before half past eight, Echo 24 arrived in the platform at Cowden Station. Passengers alighted and boarded, Boyd gave his signal, and Reese started out on the single line southbound. This is where we differ from most of the previous episodes. Predominantly, we've only needed to talk about one train per episode. But today, I'm going to give you a second head code. 2 Echo 2-7 Echo 27 was a service headed in the other direction along the Oxted line. Now, this does show us one of the conventions of how headcodes are assigned. Normally, but not always, even numbers are assigned to trains headed in one direction and odd numbers in the other. On the Oxted line at this time, odd numbers were assigned to up services headed to the capital and even numbers took you down to Upfield. Departing Upfield at 0800, Echo 27 would bring people, as the downtrain did, from their homes to a market town for socialising, shopping and work. The added benefit of the up was that in Oxted you could make a connection into the capital for a day in the big city. The crew of 2 Echo 27 was, as Echo 24's, a driver and a guard. The driver, a Mr Barton, was accompanied by a guard, Mr Brett Andrews. They journeyed north through the same fog, passing through Ashurst and continuing northbound. Both of these trains were composed of the same traction, formed of two three-car class 205 diesel multiple units, meaning that each train was six cars long in total. The 205s were nicknamed Thumpers, on account of the noise that they made while underway. It's a fairly distinctive sound created by their four-cylinder engines. One thing that was certain about these trains was that they weren't the newest traction on the network. Built for BR between 1957 and 1962, these units had provided dutiful service in the southeast for over 30 years by this point. In their lifetime, these carriages had seen their share of liveries and logos. While they were brought in, 
and operated by the Southern Region of British Railways. In time, this became the London and Southeastern Sector, or LSE. In 1986, this was relaunched as Network Southeast, bringing with it a new paint scheme and wider branding. By 1994, the sweeping changes and impending privatisation meant that they were now operated by one of the shadow franchises created to pave the way, Network South Central. Driver Reese was sat at the controls of one of these thumpers as he pulled his train out of Cowden. He brought it into the sweeping left-hand curve, until, to his horror, he saw the front of an identical unit heading back down the single line towards him. He jumped from his seat, releasing the driver's safety device, which automatically applied the brakes. There was, however, nowhere to prevent the collision occurring. There just wasn't any time. Reese managed to run back into the engine compartment just behind his cab, but no further before the collision took place. While driver Reese had been at the front of his train, his guard, Mr Boyd, had remained at the rear to carry out his duties as required by his role. Shortly after leaving Cowden, he became aware of an emergency brake application and was almost immediately, he experienced what was described as a crunch and the train came suddenly to a stand. Leaning out of the window, he looked to the front of the train and could see that there were derailed vehicles. Assuming the train must have struck something laid on the track, he walked forwards till he reached what he presumed was the leading driver's cab. Finding it empty, he came to the rational understanding that his driver must have gone forwards along the line to place protection. Detonators, often called debts, on the line, and to signal approaching trains to stop with his flags. After putting his own debts down in front of the train, he walked back to the rear, doing what he could to comfort and reassure his passengers as he did so. He then walked 300 metres back to Cowden Station to telephone for help. As rescuers began to arrive, and railwaymen arrived on the site, the full scope of the disaster became clear. When Mr Boyd had walked to the front of the train, what he thought was the leading cab was actually the rear of the up service. Between the wreckage that had accumulated in the middle of the derailment and the fact that both trains were formed of the exact same type of stock, he hadn't actually realised that the unthinkable had happened. His train and another had somehow collided head-on. While the rear four carriages of each train were relatively undamaged, sadly that couldn't be said for the leading vehicles. The front coach of the down train, where driver Reese had been located, lay on its left-hand side next to the track. Both of its bogies were ripped away and the front end had been pushed inwards by around two metres. The second coach had also suffered damage with a displaced bogey and damage to the components holding it to the train. The second coach of the up train, the one which had been travelling in the opposite direction, had come to be damaged at its front end with body panels torn away and the body side panels torn away on the other side, but none of this compared to the damage found on the leading carriage of the up train. In short... 
This vehicle was completely destroyed above the level of the floor. The frame itself was severely damaged at the front end and the leading bogey had been torn off, but there was very little recognisable about the carriage. Rescue work continued and passengers were freed from the wreckage and evacuated from the trackside. But when all was said and done, five people lost their lives in the Kent countryside. Two passengers, Mrs Maura Pointer and her husband Raymond, had been travelling in the lead carriage of the up train and been flung from it as it disintegrated. Driver David Reese, the driver of the down train, had managed to run from his cab, but not far enough to be able to save his life. He was joined by the driver of the up train, Mr Barton, Mr Brian Barton, who was found trapped between the wreckage of the two trains. The fifth and final fatality actually threw up more questions than it did answers. When Mr Boyd walked to the rear of the up train, he didn't find his counterpart, Jonathan Brett Andrews. This was because his body was located in the same place as driver Barton's, up at the front of the train. Another accident had taken place and another five lives had been lost on the rails of the UK. As ever, following a significant accident, an investigation has to be carried out. Major C.B. Holden, Her Majesty's Chief Inspecting Officer of the Railways, and the Railway Inspectorate set out to report on the events of the 15th of October. As part of the investigation into the accident at Cowden, there were several questions which needed answering, as in every investigation. Firstly, and most importantly, why were both trains travelling in opposite directions on the same track? There were protections in place to prevent this, but something had gone wrong. To answer this question, they would need to look into several other factors. Were signals set correctly? Had the trains themselves malfunctioned? Was there an error in driver input? It was a big question, but it was certainly an important one. Secondly, were there any factors which could have prevented the accident from occurring? Were there any opportunities missed? And thirdly, there had clearly been an astronomical amount of damage to at least one of the vehicles of the trains. Was this unavoidable, or had the age and design directly affected the outcome? To understand the first question, we need to understand the safe systems of work set up around single lines. We've spoken in the past about double and quad track layouts, locations where, unless something's gone wrong, each line travels only in the one direction. An up line and a down line. Up fast, down fast. Lines that are directional. This is a safe method of work. Everybody knows where to expect trains to come from. Trains headed in separate directions, separated physically from each other. But it's really important to know and recognise that single lines are not dangerous. They pop up all over the country and to travel on a train on one of them does not put your life at risk. 
This is due to the fact that there are some really strong controls around their use and management of the trains using them. The first and most important part of this is signalling. We've talked previously about the basic principle of signalling, only one train in one section of track at one time. This doesn't change on single lines. Over the years, there have been many incidents where trains have sadly ended up in collision on single lines, so the industry developed several systems to keep them safe. Some of the earliest railways ran solely on timetables, so trains would simply be timed to pass one at a time, but when that proved unreliable, especially when trains were delayed, they looked at alternatives. One of the next developments came along when the telegraph and block instruments were invented, so signalers could talk to each other. Signaler A could ask signaler B whether the single line section was clear before he sent his train down it. This went a long way towards safely controlling these sections. However, some of the worst accidents in the history of our country have been the result of errors by signalers. It hasn't always been malicious circumvention of rules. Sometimes it's been something as simple as forgetting where you are in a process, or accepting a train through muscle memory, but it has had some disastrous consequences. In 1915, 226 lives were lost at Quintons Hill in Scotland on the West Coast Main Line. This is the worst loss of life in a UK rail accident. Cause? Signal error. So, it was clear that while communication of signals is crucial, it cannot be relied on entirely. Other measures are used. One development that came about was the system of tokens. A token is an item which a driver must be in possession of prior to entering a section of track. There may be a large staff or a loop, initially, physically passed from station staff to driver. The principle was with only one token, two trains couldn't be in the same section, as the other would have to wait outside for the token to be handed over by the preceding train. Even if a signal accidentally set the route and the signal, the driver would know not to move his train, knowing he didn't have the token. This system developed as the railway grew, and in some places it meant that tokens were locked into a telegraph machine in the box so they could only be released when both signalers agreed on it. Eventually, the evolution of the token system led to radio electric token block. This is a system where physical tokens are replaced entirely with virtual tokens issued over the radio by signalers and displayed in cab. This has some real cost benefits when it's compared to conventional signalling in remote locations. You'll find it on some places like the West Highland Line. All of these developments are really good, but there's a fundamental difference at Cowden. It doesn't have a token system. But the line had only been singled in 1990. And it wasn't singled in its entirety. Between Oxted and Uckfield, there were three single track sections, and at the same time as the line was singled, modern signalling had been introduced on the line as well. This signalling was controlled from the Oxted signal box, and the protections that were provided included automated warning system, AWS, which we've talked about before, track circuiting, and something called solid state interlocking. These all sound really good, and they are, 
AWS would give a visible and audible warning to any driver approaching a red signal, and if he didn't acknowledge it, would apply the brakes manually. Track circuiting is a system which uses the metal axle of the train to complete a circuit and tell signals the location of trains so they can be kept track of. And solid state interlocking was a processor based development of good old fashioned interlocking made of bars and notches and cables and pulleys in the earlier days of mechanical signalling. All of these systems prevented accidents. The interlocking prevented signals and points being set against each other. The AWS should provide protection against SPADs. So with this level of protection, what went wrong? Signalman Webb was on duty at Oxted on the morning of the 15th. Booking on at 0650, he got started with the day's work. As the day proceeded, he set the route for 2 Echo 24, driver Reese's down service, through the single line section at Cowden. Set it all the way through the loop at Ashurst, sorry, and to the signal at the end of the loop, which protected the next single line section. At the same time, he also set the route for Echo 27, the up service, through Ashurst Station and up to OD 58, or Oscar Delta 58, the signal leading into the single line section to Cowden. This was a normal signalling practice, and it allowed both trains to call at Ashurst without any delay. He watched the panel, and when Echo 27 arrived into Ashurst Station, he set the route for Echo 24 through out of the loop Ashurst and to Uckfield, because it was now clear and nothing was going to be coming the other way. He knew at this point that he had nothing to do until Echo 24 passed Blackhurst Junction, which was the north end of the Ashurst Loop. So he decided to prepare his breakfast. Very shortly after he turned his mind to his breakfast, he received a critical alarm from the signalling system. The points at Blackham were out of correspondence. They weren't aligned for the downline, as set, but for the up. Coupled with the fact that two track circuits on the single line were now showing as occupied, SignalWeb knew what had happened. The up train, 2 Echo 27, had run through the red signal, through into the single line section, and a collision was now almost certain. Webb immediately called the control room at Croydon raising the alarm and requesting the emergency services, probably before the collision had even occurred. At the time the alarm sounded, there was still a mile and a half between the trains. Webb placed collars on the controls of the equipment, preserving the setup for the investigation that he knew would follow. Realistically, there was no way that Mr Webb could have done any more. He had no way of contacting the drivers directly, although this would give rise to other questions later on. In order to back up the account of the signalman, on-site investigations were also carried out into the equipment. Barring some contamination on the inside of the lenses, it was decided that Oscar Delta 58 was showing a normal red aspect under the initial investigation. When more investigators arrived, they noted that the alignment was slightly to the right and below the ideal driver's eye line, and their professional opinion became that it was a reasonable red, though fog would have significantly reduced the time it was visible for. But it would still have been visible between 20 to 50 metres away. 
The, po the points showed definitive evidence of having been run through in the wrong layout, which confirmed that the signal had set them for the down service. In fact, one of the good things about modern signalling is that the system had a sort of black box, so all the actions and settings and switches that were taken were recorded. Webb's account was backed up. Signalling was not the cause of the collision. The signal was at danger. So this leads now to the follow-up questions. Why did the train SPAD? SPAD being the acronym for Signal Passed at Danger. The possibility was explored as to whether the train had malfunctioned, had the brakes failed or the controls jammed. Examinations of the trains on the scene brought up no concerns. There were no significant leaks, no isolated brakes, no overly worn brake blocks, so that wasn't on the cards either. The next possibility was almost unthinkable. Had driver Barton somehow missed the signal, either through distraction or otherwise? Could this explain why he hadn't stopped at it and continued on? Yes, it could, except for something we've already talked about on this podcast a lot. AWS. On the approach to Oscar Delta 58, in the forefoot between the tracks, there was an AWS ramp. With the signal at red, the ramp will have triggered a horn and an indication on the sunflower of the cab. If it wasn't acknowledged, then the train brakes will have automatically applied. A distracted Barton would have snapped out of it and acknowledged to continue, and if he didn't, the train would have stopped. When the train equipment was tested, the AWS kit, that which could be found and assessed within the wreckage, was also examined. Maintenance records and line-side equipment were checked, and the conclusion reached was that the AWS was working, so it must have been acknowledged to pass through the signal. The answer to that first question, the reason two trains were in the same section, was down to an error by the driver of 2 Echo 27. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. With our first question answered, it's clear that the blame lies at the door of the person sat at the controls of 2 Echo 27. Sufficient landmarks existed for the driver to know where he was. His route knowledge would support that, and missing the signal shouldn't have happened. He should also have been focused firmly on the task at hand. He evidently was not. 
Part of the reason for the accident may be explained by where the body of guard Brett Andrews was located, alongside Barton. At the very least, the presence of somebody else in the cab would have been a distraction to Barton. But at worst? In 1992, Brett Andrews had been warned by an inspector for riding in the front cab of a train, and then again, more severely. In fact, on the 8th of this year, 1994, he'd been caught yet again and received a formal final warning for it. Outside of a very specific set of circumstances, Brett Andrews had no business in the driving cab during the journey. But it doesn't end there. The guard, Brett Andrews, had aspirations to become a driver, and there was speculation that he, and not Barton, may have been at the controls at the time of the accident. Some of this speculation relied on some allegations around the speed and the driving on the day, but these were made by passengers, relatively unqualified to comment. There were some pieces of evidence submitted around the timings that were recorded by the signalling system, but they weren't strong enough to prove anything. Some other pieces of fuel for this fire were an admitted history of a desire from Brett Andrews to be a driver, and there were some unverifiable statements made to the police. There was also some evidence from another railman earlier in the day which firmly placed him in the cab with Barton, even to the point of him acknowledging hand signals from platform staff from the cab. But perhaps the most scathing evidence I could find for this theory is that, according to an article in The Independent from 1996, Brett Andrews had twice been reprimanded for actually driving trains, though he wasn't allowed to. I really want to make clear here, I'm unable to find a second source for this, and I normally wouldn't put enough stock in a single source to share it. But the author is Christian Walmar. Now, if you don't recognise his name, a cursory glance on its Wikipedia page will show you why I'm inclined to accept its accuracy and professionalism. In any case, when all was considered by Major Holden, he recorded that although it would have been unsafe to come to a definitive conclusion as to who was driving. His belief was that it had been Barton. However, even if it was not Barton, and he'd allowed Brett Andrews to take the controls, driver Barton would remain wholly responsible for the accident. To relinquish the controls to Brett Andrews would, in and of itself, have been an unsafe act for which Barton would have been blamed. The report made the following fairly unequivocal statement about driver Barton and his actions on the day. I am inclined to believe, therefore, that the driver must have subconsciously cancelled the AWS warning and was distracted by the other person in the cab at the crucial moment. To have run by the signal in these circumstances is blameworthy, but understandable. To have driven on without consciously registering the aspect of the signal to a point where he must have realised that the signal had been passed is not only inexcusable and blameworthy, but also totally irresponsible. In this instance, it does not matter who was actually at the controls. Driver Barton was in charge of the driving of the train, and I conclude, therefore, that Driver Barton is wholly responsible for the accident. No 
Knowing the reasons behind the crash gave investigators the knowledge they needed to assess whether or not measures could have prevented it had they been in place. Clearly, more attentive and responsible driving of the uptrain would have prevented it happening, but there was a need to identify whether any institutional factors impacted on the events of the day. One stood out as a glaring omission, but before we dive into that, we need to head back in time a few years to 1988 and another disaster, Clapham Junction. Clapham was a tragic event, where 35 lives were lost, but the inquiry, chaired by Anthony Hidden QC, gave rise to some fairly large-scale changes in the safety culture of the industry. Regulations were brought in off the back of one recommendation which was intended to help manage fatigue, and we still call these rules the Hidden Rules. You'll see quite often in an operating company's logs how things have been done to avoid breaking hidden. But I'm bringing it up because of one fairly specific recommendation. Number 43. BR shall implement as a priority its program to install a system of radio communication between driver and signalman on all traction units. The introduction of this system shall be in addition to signal post telephones and not automatically entail their removal. This recommendation was made so that there was a reliable and quick way that signallers and train crew could talk to each other. This could mean a timely emergency call could be made in both directions as well as more day-to-day messages, without solely relying on line-side telephones. In 1986, BR had developed something called Cab Secure Radio, or CSR. This would allow for signallers to directly contact trains, reliably, and pass across both routine and emergency communications to them. In the same vein, trains could pass the same type of message back, from the comfort and safety of the cab. This was the ideal product for the job. There was another option, National Radio Network, a different radio communication system between trains and signallers, but it suffered patchy coverage. Sir Anthony Hidden's recommendation merely called for a system of radio communication between driver and signalman. Nowhere in the recommendation did he actually lay down a timescale for it, but it was given in evidence and noted in the report that the target completion date was 1992. However, between then and 1994, a funding hiatus had occurred. While the Upfield line had been on the list for the provision of CSR, No action had been taken to implement it at the time that this hiatus took place. Now, NRN in fact covered the area served by the Upfield line at the time of the accident, but with one exception. The trains had not been equipped with any form of radio. Even in the event that the trains had been equipped with it, the uptrain, driven by Barton, may have been able to receive a warning message, but the the Major believed that the terrain around the downtrain meant that he probably would have been unlikely to receive the message. So, NRN, it might have prevented the accident from being as severe, but it was unlikely to prevent it in its entirety. In any case, the lack of radios on the trains made it a moot point. The Major was quite clear, however, in his assertions about cab-secure radio, stating that if CSR had been fitted the signaller could have delivered a stop message to both trains and would have been granted an opportunity to prevent the accident in its entirety. As I said, 
This line was earmarked for CSR and it was supposed to have been implemented by October of 1992, two years earlier. The reasons it apparently didn't happen then was because the whole thing had been overtaken by what one interviewee described as a funding change of seismic proportions. This change resulted in the moratorium on investment in 1991-1992. This part of the report doesn't say what the cause of the funding change was, but do you remember in the intro when I mentioned that the Channel Tunnel opened this year? Couple that with inbound privatisation and I must say my personal opinion is probably that BR found things they would rather spend the cash on. But I will try to stick to what I can cite sources for. Anyway, in the great tradition of closing the stable door after the horse has bolted, the decision was taken to install CSR on the Oakfield branch two to three months after the collision at Cowden. Back in 1994, communication equipment was provided by Network South Central to its train crews, but as we have established, it was not in the form of radios. It was in the form of mobile telephones. But these on their own brought some significant issues. No real record was ever made of what form was on what train. The signals had no way of reaching out in any timely manner. And in rural areas, such as Cowden, signal was sporadic to say the least. You think it's bad now? Take it back that many years. In fact, the Major's comments probably serve as the greatest indictment of this method of work. The provision of mobile telephones, which were regarded as a substitute for an adequate radio system, was unsatisfactory. Carrying one was not mandatory. There was no proper system for issuing them or recording which trains had which telephone. Their reliability was poor and their battery endurance low. There were notorious black spots on the Upfield branch where mobile telephones became unusable. Because the object of having them was said to be to enable drivers to call the signal box, there were no adequate arrangements for reciprocal calls. In short, despite promises made to various rail users groups, the system fell into disrepute and then disuse. Implementation of the recommendations out of Clapham's disaster could have prevented this one, but it clearly didn't happen. Implementation of even the initially proposed date of 1992 could have saved five lives. Safe to say that yet again, a missed opportunity to prevent disaster. point to investigate was around the crashworthiness of the vehicles, particularly the leading vehicle of the uptrain, reduced to an underframe with the body completely destroyed. The leader of the crashworthiness team at BR Research said of the wreckage, in my experience I do not think that I have ever seen a vehicle quite so badly damaged in the terms of the amount of bending and twisting of the metal that forms the underframe of the vehicle. The superstructure of the vehicle had been completely wiped off as it had been overridden by the Uckfield-bound train. There was virtually nothing left above floor level, and the roof structure had been torn off completely and was straddling the two vehicles. The front bogey had come off, and the rear bogey was still attached but derailed. Essentially, all that was left was the underframe, and the superstructure was just a pile of wreckage. It's understandable that vehicles which react in this way leave little opportunity for occupants to survive crashes. When we talk about design now, we talk about survival space. 
there was no survival space left in the leading vehicle of the uptrain. It was all gone. There was a clear correlation between the type of stock involved and the scale of the devastation. And a recommendation was made quite firmly that in the absence of the complete replacement of the Mark I rolling stock, which would be the preferred solution, an urgent programme of research into the practical practicability of improving the crashworthiness of all the designs of rolling stock should again be undertaken, and the outcomes shared with Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate within a year. Now we get to the part of the episode where I get to tell you the future developments which means that this shouldn't happen anymore, and you're going to end up with deja vu, because I'm going to bring up TPWS, Train Protection and Warning System. This system is now in place as standard at most signals. If it had been fitted at Cowden, where the uptrain approached the signal too fast to stop in time, the train's brakes would automatically have applied. Whereas an AWS warning can be cancelled and ignored, A TPWS brake demand can't be dealt with in the same way. The only way to override it is by taking action purposefully before you carry out any manoeuvre that would normally set it off. TPWS would have prevented the uptrain at Cowden from rampantly passing the signal without any action. And that's it, that's TPWS for this episode out of the way. There was another piece of kit that was brought in between Cowden and the implementation of TPWS and it was brought in following several high-profile incidents of signals passed at danger, including the one at Cowden, the SPAD indicator. These normally appeared like a standard three-aspect signal, however there were some fundamental differences. They had a distinctive blue backboard to avoid them being mistaken as broken colour light signals. All three lenses were red, and on the earlier examples the middle one had the word STOP written across the glass. When the indicator activated, the top and bottom lights flash, and the middle light shows a steady red. If you saw one of these lit, you were obliged to stop your train. Even if you thought it didn't relate to you directly, you had to stop. These SPAD indicators were installed in the rear of signals in locations where a SPAD brought a particular risk, such as the entry to a single line. Going forward several years, further developments were also made in the field of radios. It's plain that we love our abbreviations on the railway, and in time we've added yet another one. CSR and MRN gave way to GSMR. GSMR is a subsystem of the European Rail Traffic Management System. If you like another abbreviation, that's ERTMS. And it stands for Global System for Mobile Communications Railway. GSMR is a secure platform for voice and data communication, and while it's used for several things in the ERTMS system, the voice communications aspect is of particular relevance here. This radio system allows for point-to-point calls, just like a normal mobile, as well as a few other neat features. But the really important one that we want to discuss now 
is another abbreviation, R-E-C. And it stands for Railways Emergency Call. On each GSMR unit in the cab, there's a bright red button. If a driver or a signaller on his system hits this button, they can make an emergency call. All trains in the area receive a warning message, preceded by an audible alarm, and all hear the recording. If a driver receives a REC, an REC, the driver must stop his train and confirm that he is at a stand by pressing a button on the radio unit. Clearly this is a substantial improvement on previous offerings, and several accidents have been prevented or had their severity substantially lowered by the use of an REC. Cowden is an example of how, even despite advances in previous years, features that are implemented after other accidents, violations or lapses can still lead to disaster, even when those other safety features have been installed. AWS should have warned the driver of the uptrain that he was making a deadly mistake, but it didn't have the desired effect. Colour light signalling should have been more effective than the old semaphore options in the fog, yet this didn't stop the aspect being missed on the day. This accident is also a prime example of what happens when you don't act on recommendations from previous ones. Hidden's recommendations on radios were made years before the collision at Cowden. As so often happens in business, it seems as though money was needed elsewhere, and the project pushed back and delayed. Cab Secure Radio would have had a good chance of saving the lives of Maura and Raymond Pointer, David Rees, Brian Barton and Jonathan Brett Andrews. Though the loss of lives was avoidable, they are remembered. A simple and elegant plaque can be found on the station building at Cowden. The anniversary sees flowers left and sometimes signs left by colleagues of driver Rees paying their respects to those who passed away. The plaque reads, Always remembered, 15, 10, 1994. so that's episode 8 over and done with thank you for bearing with me especially with the block nose sore throat all of that jazz once again please like share review come interact with us on social media twitter facebook just search for signals to danger if you are interested in supporting us please go have a look at our patreon patreon.com signals to danger and of course the music from this episode was take a deep breath light goes away by douglas maxwell Deserted City, Warm of Mechanical Heart, Difference, Sunset and Brand New World by Kai Engel, and Merkabar by Jesse Gallagher. Until next episode, travel safe. <laughs>